Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I recently published a book on American soft power entitled The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. One of the takeaways from my book is the incredible value of the American higher education system. It's a great source of our strength. I'm joined today by Dr. William C. Kirby. He's a senior professor at Harvard University. He's also at the Harvard Business School. And he's written an absolutely fascinating book on the subject of kind of a comparison of higher education systems called Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. I strongly recommend Dr. Kirby's book. I liked the book very much, and he's uniquely qualified to write about the history of higher education systems and what their links are to, let's call it national progress and even national greatness, if I can use that term. His book undertakes a historical comparison of three higher education systems, the German system, which was widely recognized as the greatest in the 19th century and the early 20th centuries. The American system, which has, I think, largely been recognized as sort of the most widely regarded since around, I'd say, the mid 20th century. And Dr. Kirby can correct me. And then the Chinese system, which is making a play to become the world's greatest higher education system of the century. I'm going to put my cards on the table and say, I hope they don't do it. I hope we remain the number one power in the world. And I don't want them to be the number one power in the world. But I know that a part of their ability to become a great global power or the leading power in the world is going to absolutely be tied to whether or not they have a world-class higher education system. And I know many people don't necessarily think about it in those terms, and maybe that's a little bit of an edgy, controversial thing for me to say, but that's what I think and what I really – but I had to have Dr. Kirby on my podcast. I read the book. I'd also did a report with my friend Richard Crespin which the name escapes me right now, but we'll put it maybe in the in the link to the session on higher education and great power competition here at CSIS with my colleague Richard Crespin and a couple of other colleagues, which I also think would be a good adjunct to Dr. Kirby's amazing book, Empire of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. I'm going to try and say it seven times, Dr. Kirby, because I was told in marketing you're supposed to say something seven times so they don't re- remember it. So anyway, so Dr. Kirby, thanks for being on the podcast. Really appreciate you joining us today. Dan, thank you very much. It's it's great to be here. Great to be here with somebody who also knows the world of higher education. And feel free to say the name of the book as often as you wish. And there you go. You're, that's right. Exactly. Good. So tell us, Dr. Kirby, first tell our listeners about your career And then tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book, Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. Well, I'm a historian, and I was actually originally trained as a historian of Germany and a historian uh, of Europe. That was my central area before I came to graduate school at Harvard, where I both did European history as as a central focus, but also 
became a student of John Fairbank, uh, the leading uh, founder, really, of American China studies, uh, modern American China studies. And so I did both over time, and I became uh, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, a wonderful institution where I taught modern Chinese history, and then later on here at Harvard. So as a historian, a straightforward trajectory, uh, looking at China's international development but uh, over the course of the 20th and now 21st century, and how its international uh, interactions have uh, shaped its modern development. But I also, this book came to me two ways. First, in my time as Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard in the first part of this century, where I came to know my own university very well, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, about half of Harvard University. And uh, I oversaw all the academics as well as the admissions and even the football team. A uh, big, reasonably big job. Uh, but I came to know my university and many others as well, our competition and our global comrades and, and competition uh, as well. But I came to the idea of this book in the year 2010, although I didn't start writing it for a long time thereafter when I attended the 200th anniversary of the University of Berlin, today called the Humboldt University in Berlin, the original model of every modern research university. And the president of the Humboldt University welcomed this enormous gathering of uh, talent from around the world to celebrate the 200th anniversary. And the conference was entitled the Humboldt University, the original model. And he said, and I will quote, nobody would take my university as a model for anything today. Oh. He was very quickly no longer the president of the Humboldt University. But the fact is that he was not wrong. The greatest university in the world it was, you know, certainly at a, you know, for more than a century, the greatest university in the world without any, without peer, uh, far ahead of any of them famous names we know today, is no longer the best university in the world, no longer the best university in Germany. It's not even the best university in Berlin. And I've got to think, how do universities and systems of higher education rise and fall? And what is the relationship between national power and the power of higher education? Because, you know, we, we measure the strength of nations sometimes by the size of GDP or the size of an army or navy. Those are all reasonably important. But we should also measure them on the strength of ideas and the institutions that produce ideas, because there has not been a leading power really since the 18th century. Look at France in the 18th century. Look at Germany and Britain in the 19th century, America in the 20th century. That has not also been a leading power in the realm of ideas and of the institutions that produce them. Amen. Okay, so tell folks a little bit more about the German higher education system. Now, I knew this because I'd read a book by the president of Arizona State about a modern university, and he talked about the German system. And I didn't know anything about this before maybe two or three years ago, maybe five years ago that Germany had the greatest higher education system in the world. Now, maybe some of my listeners knew this, but I sure as heck didn't know this. 
why was this and what distinguished the German system in the 19th century from, say, the British or the French system? Okay, very good question. First of all, there wasn't much of a system to uh, a German system of higher education until 1810, and I'll get to that in a moment. But it distinguished itself from you know, the great and ancient universities of Britain, Oxford, and Cambridge, uh, and the new grands écoles in, of, uh, the, established by Napoleon, called des Autitudes, uh, as institutions directly serving the state uh, to create a modern bureaucracy. Two quite different models. The British ones focused on collegiate teaching and the transmission of ideas. But what the Germans did, you know, thinking about this, you know, universities are more than a millennium old, but the modern research university born in Berlin in 1810, the modern research university is only 233 years old this year. And it was as a result of the defeat by Napoleon uh, of Prussia in 1810 that Frederick William III, the king, decided to establish a university in Berlin, which had never been a center of learning, establish a university in the Prussian capital of Berlin. And he said he wanted to do this. He wanted to replace what we have lost in physical strength with intellectual strength. I don't know of any leader before or since who has uttered those words. But he deputed an extraordinary group of individuals led by the Enlightenment intellectual uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt to create an altogether new type of teaching and, as it turns out, research institution. And Humboldt and his comrades put together an institution that was in fundamental ways different. First of all, it would be a research university. That is to say, it would pursue science, Wissenschaft, whether in literary science, historical science, or natural science. The idea was that a university was there to actually create knowledge, not simply to transmit it. That's number one. And it was new in 1810. Second, that a university should create knowledge by faculty and students working together, the unity of teaching and learning. Third, that they should do so in an environment of academic freedom, or of at least, shall we say, comparative academic freedom, of Lehrfreiheit, the German word for the freedom to teach, and Lernfreiheit, the freedom to learn. And then, before they should do so, even if in an institution entirely uh, financed by the state, they should do so with a high degree of institutional autonomy to make their own decisions about whom to hire, whom not to hire, what areas of research to pursue, and so on. And fifth, the center of the university would not be professional education. Most German universities before that prepared people for degrees, uh, for careers in the law or in the clergy, or simply for the state bureaucracy. This, the center of the university would be the faculty, the philosophical faculty, the, what we would today call the faculty of arts and sciences at its center. And if you look around the world and you look at the world's greatest universities, they all today share those several traits. Okay, there's the book talks at length about kind of the fall of the German system. I think it's probably for this podcast, it may take too long to get into the details. You have to read Professor Kirby's book, Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China to hear about the fall of the German system. And I'm gonna describe it as unsuccessful attempts since German unification to 
get their groove back, if I can put it that way. I want to move to the American system, Dr. Kirby. Tell us about the U.S. system and why has it become so successful today? Well, it became so successful, and this is a way of actually addressing your last question uh, very quickly. It became so successful by adapting the German model uh, to American teaching institutions. Harvard, for example, was a parochial college on a on a British model and did not become a serious in research institution uh, until it adopted until it founded the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences on a German model in the 1870s, following the leads of the University of Chicago and Johns Hopkins University, who were explicitly founded as institutions on German models. Uh, Stanford University. I don't know, Dan, do you know, do you know the motto of Stanford University? No. Well, it's in German and Stanford University. Really? I just yeah. knew it was like Stanford Junior College. I thought it was going to be Stanford. Stanford Junior College. Right. Uh, Stanford, uh, Stanford is the motto of Stanford University is the Luft der Freiheit weht, the wind wow. of freedom blows. And what happened in Germany, of course, as your listeners will know, is that the wind of freedom ceased to blow in 1933 with the nationalist seizure of power. And German universities have never fully recovered from that decades uh, or a decade of Nazism and decades in the East of communism and massification in the West and many other things. They're trying hard uh, at the moment and very innovative in certain ways. But if eight of the 10 leading universities 100 years ago would have been German universities, and I'm quite certain that's true, it's very rare that a single German university gets into the top 50 in the global rankings. So the Americans take the German model, they meld it onto teaching institutions, keeping alive the idea of a closely, close-read undergraduate education, and so in some sense improving on the German model in that, in that regard. Uh, and it's really during and after the Second World War, however, that American research universities, as the purposes of the universities are melded to the state for the purpose of winning the Second World War, that they become the leading research universities uh, in the world. And really, from the 1940s to the present, I think it is fair to say that the Americans have well outdone uh, their German tutors uh, and have become the magnet of international talent from across the world. And we now, if you want to have a career anywhere in the world, that is taken to the highest level and to test yourself against the best, you will likely come to America. Right. So economics, physics, law, business, history, lit many literature areas, you still come to the U.S. I would argue that's our superpower. What I say is, tell me about the line of people outside the Chinese consulate. Tell me about outside the lineup, people outside the Russian consulate. How many people are trying to get into those countries in an undocumented way? You see a lot of people trying to cross some river to get into Russia or China. The answer is no. Now, there may be a handful of examples, but guess what? I consider it one of our superpowers that people want to come to the United States. When people don't want to come to the United States, we're in deep, deep trouble. So I think one of the reasons is because people want to come to our institutions of higher learning. So anyway, so so I, I, anyways, I think you're really uniquely positioned to have written this book. You're a German scholar. 
you ran universities and kind of had leadership jobs. You taught at a number of universities. You had some kind, you have some kind of a affiliation or had an affiliation with Duke as well. So you knew Wash U and Duke and Harvard. Maybe this isn't fair. Like you're an accidental China scholar. Is that a way to describe it? You kind of, I'm not gonna say you stumbled into it, but you kind of sort of stumbled into it. Well, I did. I stumbled into it later than one would need to do so today. Only I began serious work. I did undergraduate work and interest, uh, and I was interested in China, seriously interested. But only in graduate school did I make it a you know, part of my job. professional yeah. training. But so I don't mean to be too flippant about it because, like, if you read his book, which is, as I say, I really recommend you read The Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China, you'll see that he also has got serious China cred. And I don't know if you do speak Mandarin. Sure, of course. So you so you speak Not German wrong. and Mandarin. Yes, that's okay. So you've had some kind of you've been seen as I'm going to call it a trusted higher education interlocutor with China. I think is the way I read the book, and if you read the book, you'll see that this is the case. So. Let's talk about the China. So I wanted you on the podcast because I want you to tell me they're not going to make it. That's not maybe what you wrote in your book, but that's what I want. The, I want the spoiler alert to be to tell me that they ain't going to make it. That's my hope because I want us to be the top dog and I want our higher education system to remain the top dog. So tell us about the Chinese higher education system. It's big. They've made a lot of progress. You talk about that in the book and tell me about you know, are they are they going places? Maybe you have some polite ways of saying there may be some constraints and what might hold them back. Tell me about tell me about that, because that's that's certainly on my mind. So they have huge constraints uh, that may hold them back. But, you know, let me let me just take one one step back and say that whether China will lead the world of higher education in the 21st century is to in good measure up to us. And what we do here in the United States, we have been the center of higher education because we have welcomed talent from around the world. Our graduate schools in particular, which admit people only on a meritocratic basis, uh, admit the best and the brightest from around the world. When that stops or if that stops, there are risks. There are people who would wish that to slow down. Uh, then we will decline. But the other reason why I worry a lot about the United States, and it's part of the chapter uh, in particular that I have on, on the UC Berkeley, is 44 out of 50 American states today are disinvesting in public higher education. Public higher education where 80% of our students go for their education. Uh, and China, by contrast, no place is investing more in higher education than in China. So let me turn now to the Chinese scene. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, and historical, there is no civilization on earth that has a longer and more enduring veneration for education than China. Think of the history of the old imperial examinations that ended in 1905. But Chinese universities have not risen from nowhere over the last three or four decades. Uh, they began to be founded on European models, particularly German models, but with also American models as well, uh, in the late 19th century, they're about 130 years old as a system. They developed in the pre-communist period a remarkable and small, but remarkable system of public and private Chinese and foreign institutions that was one of the best small systems of higher education in the world. 
before 1949. All of that was Sovietized in the 1950s under the communists and then nearly destroyed uh, by the madcap rule of Mao Zedong during the Cultural Revolution. But since then, they have come back and in a dramatic way, first in size. There are 2 million Chinese university students in the year 1990. There are 6 million in the year 2000. Around 2007, I was having lunch with the Minister of Education, and I asked him, how many students are there today in 2007? And he said, 23 million. And it was one of these long and gracious Chinese lunches, many courses. By dessert, the number was 26 million, because somebody came and gave him new ideas, new, uh, new data. Today, the number is 44 million. China has gone in the course of this century from being half the size of the American system to being more than twice the size of the American system. So the American system is 20 million and they're 40 million. Yeah, 44. Yeah. I looked, I just Googled while we were talking. The, we, and the United States has 1 million foreign students, Maso Menos, 900,000, depending on the year, uh, of foreign students in this country. I couldn't get a clear handle on how many foreign students, but I know it's growing by leaps and bounds in China because they are providing very generous scholarships. When I visited probably 80 countries, doctor, in my professional career, I always ask two questions. One is, where do you send your elites to study? And if they say Moscow or Beijing, I don't like it. I prefer they say the United States of America or OECD countries. And then I also ask, where do you buy your weapon systems from? Because that's a that that has a it's not just about the hardware it's about the training and the software you're getting married to a con- another partner for decades right so it's like who are you getting married to defense wise that's in essence what the, that's a vector for so I hear you about we could be in trouble but I I don't I'm not too worried I worry about that concern in the United States but if we have a million foreign students. If we go to 100,000, I'll be worried, and that would be yeah. a problem. If we go to 500,000, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd like it to be a million. I think a million's good, of which I think about 300,000 are Chinese. I think we're massively overhyping the threat. I have a lot of Chinese students, by the way, at Harvard, and I, I and my very first ones at Washington University. They, they actually do take courses in English literature. They do take courses in uh, you know American politics. They do take courses uh, in a lot of philosophy uh, and uh, a number of philosophy. This is we we cannot stereotype everyone into the idea that everybody is some kind of science and math wonk in China and that they're distinctly uh, uh, you know identified only by that by that measure. It's I'm an not, extraordinary not, range of people that we get here. But I, but what I, I worry. Yeah, what I worry. So I, I hear you, and I hundred percent agree with you. And I think so. I think it's my message is I think it's very important that we continue to have we have about 300,000 of the million students that study in this country, about 300,000 study are from mainland China. I think that's a good thing. We should stop doing that. But I think there's been so I agree. And we shouldn't we should. This is not an I hear you that this is not a new thing. This happened with Taiwanese students under the dictatorship of the Kuomintang. This happens with. Other folks like Saudi students, there's probably been examples in uh, Iranian students or others. 
but it seems to me there's been a lot of press about this. And I know you kind of you you kind of you have framed it in your book and you, you what you're saying here, you also say in your book. And I, 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 I understood and I empathized with I thought I think it made a lot of sense. And I also think say like, OK, I'm not necessarily stereotyping Chinese students, but it seems as if there have been a number of stories. Maybe some of it, as you said, is overhyped, but some of it has been there have been enough stories that it's created a concern. Let me put it. How about I'll put it that way? So I think, I, I think that's fair. And then the, these concerns go every which way. You know, we uh, I was with uh, Harvard's president, Larry Bacco, before, in the year before COVID, and we met with uh, President Xi Jinping uh, in Beijing in the Great Hall of the People. Man. President Xi told us that he had told Donald Trump, Trump was still president, Yeah, that if you restrict the number of Chinese coming to the United States, you are do- giving a great gift to Europe. Um, and, <laughs> yes. and it's true. It's, it's true. true. Uh, and uh, Chinese students, the number has gone down. Happily, the Biden administration has been excellent at giving visas, uh, which the Trump administration was not. But the Biden administration has been excellent. But the numbers declined somewhat. Uh, and then the numbers going to Europe, Japan, Australia have gone up. The overall numbers of Chinese going abroad continues to be a very, very sizable uh, number. And that's not just it's 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 not a matter of just admissions and, and visas. It's a matter of whether or not people feel welcome. It's a matter of the climate, the political climate in this China, in this country, which also sure. has a certain racialist element. To it at the moment, and and also, you know, the way the CC, the Chinese Communist Party uh, press, mm-hmm. has hyped up uh, this crime scenes of the uh, United States and so on in recent years. But basically, we're doing very well. We continue to attract them, and they can, and they they and their parents mm-hmm. continue to want to come to the United States. And we sh- we we must make we that should continue to encourage us. that. Yeah. So okay, I heard you that whether or not mainland China's education system is going to succeed or not is going to be somewhat a function of what happens in the U.S. and how welcoming we are. I've heard that. That's so let's assume we remain welcoming. Let's yep. assume we're going to have between 500 and a million students. I look back, 2003, it was 575,000. Now it's at 945. It was at a peak of 1.1 million at one point. So, so okay, so let's assume it's somewhere between 500 and a million, and we're going to be okay if we're in that range, more or less. So what what's going to drive their success, assuming we don't screw it up? Yeah. So what will drive their success is they have this is the fastest growing system of higher education in the world in quality as well as quantity. Uh, the quality comes in part by the quality of the students that comes from increasingly outstanding, particularly in big urban areas, Chinese high schools. Uh, the quality of faculty, you know, China is home or can be home to more of the best human capital in the world. Because if you're at a Chinese university, you want to recruit faculty who can also work in the Chinese language, you have all of China to deal with, but you have the entire Chinese diaspora as well, Uh, the intellectual diaspora, which over the last decades has settled across the world, and you can recruit some of them uh, back. So they have an extraordinary talent pool, but they also have extraordinary investments. Now, Tsinghua University's budget is second highest in the world among universities, second only to Harvard's. And my guess is that they're going to surpass us in a couple of years. In terms of the spending, the budget. Just, just straight straight money. Straight wow. money. Wow. Yeah. And 
you know, and, and that's one university doctor. No, it's right? one. It's one university, and uh, disproportionately, I would say the top seven universities, the so-called C seven universities, uh, they uh, sometimes called the Chinese Ivy League, is uh, uh, you know has many more resources coming to it than many others. But still, if you were to look again at these rankings, global rankings today, you have two Chinese universities in say the QS rankings, which is a very well-known ranking, that outrank all but two of the Ivy League universities and as research universities. Now, rankings only rank what can be measured, and they rank mostly research output. So that's part of their great strength today is in the realm of research. I think they have a long way to go in terms of matching the Americans you know, we complain a lot about our pedagogy and our teaching and so on, but we're actually better at it than almost any other place. And we take it more seriously than any other place. And since teaching isn't what is ranked in these global rankings very much, it's quite frankly, less successful. Uh, so teaching, inspiration, mentorship, these are aspects of higher education that are always undervalued and not well measured. Uh, but the biggest problem that China has going ahead is the party, you know, first do, of all, do tell, professor, <laughs> the, do tell. Running a university is tough work. The average tenure of an American university president is shorter than that of the average undergraduate in college. That, that's in wow. part because undergraduates take longer than you think. But still, uh, it's between five and six years. And in China, you know, governing a place is difficult in the best of circumstances, but in China, there's both a pre university president and a party secretary. Some of these party secretaries are outstanding academics, and they protect the university, and they insulate the university, and they gain resources for the university. Others are more political. It really is all over the map. There's no one size fits all, because these institutions are also just as competitive within China as are with each other. As, as we are, as 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 we are here, but the, if you look at, you know, where can this go wrong? Well, in 2013, uh, uh, after President Xi was president for a year, a, a command came down from the Central Committee that there were seven things not to talk about in universities: uh, uh, things like constitutional government, things like civil society, things like the early history of the party. Um, uh, things, you know, many, many things just like that. And it began the beginning of a political crackdown on the teaching, particularly of history, political science, not every discipline, of course. Uh, and I always say, and I say this in China, just as I do here, that a great university has to be a place where there isn't one topic that cannot be raised, let alone seven topics. Uh, and now, yeah. when I say that, say I was out at Berkeley last, last uh, fall, when I say that in front of a university audience here talking about this book, uh, somebody will always raise their hand and say, well, gee, there are at least seven things you can't talk about at Berkeley, too, uh, or at Harvard. And they're not wrong. We have our own issues here in higher education uh, on freedom of expression that we really need to work on very, very strongly. But it's not the same because it isn't the government, by and large, telling us what not to say. It's a combination of peer pressure and other things, political correctness, 
that go way, in my view, often go uh, toward a forms of self-censorship uh, in the United States. Dr. Kirby, I, I hear you. I agree. So I think our higher education system has many short, gets a lot of media coverage on our shortcomings and challenges. And I, I agree with all of them. But the reason I bought your book and read it is I wanted to know, and I want, but I want people to go out and read your book because I think it's a really important book, Empires of Ideas by Dr. Kirby at Harvard, William Kirby. Because I wanted to know, was China going to beat us in our higher education system? And so I think the question is, we don't know. I'm going to take away the following answer. This isn't necessarily the answer you're saying. But I'm going to slightly put words in your mouth saying like, the jury's out, and part of it's a big chunk of it, 80% of it's kind of up to us. So if we screw it up, if we screw up our system, if we're not welcoming, if we're not a magnet for as many people as possible to come to the United States and study, we'll screw it up. And if we screw it up, they're available to pick up the pieces. They're spending a lot more money than people realize. I did not know before this podcast that Three years from today, the budget of Tsinghua, the Harvard of China, will have spent more money, will have a bigger budget than the Harvard University system, all in Harvard Law, Harvard Business School, everything in dollars, not in dollars. Yeah, they've got some constraints. They're going to throw a lot of money at this. They've got some constraints. But if they manage those constraints and we screw it up, they are there to kind of step in and kind of be the leading system. And what history tells us is, is a lot of whether or not a higher education system is the leader or not is somewhat dependent on decisions that the system makes, right? I think that's absolutely right. Here's something that I would think about. One of the worst things that's happening in China today uh, under President Xi is the encouragement of some Chinese universities to withdraw from all these global comparisons. Three universities have withdrawn from global rankings in order to do a, quote, education with Chinese characteristics. And that, which basically means a highly political education, if I understand it correctly. But the fact is, these universities, Chinese universities, are much more like us than they are different. And these are universities that grew up in the company of the great universities of Europe, of Germany in particular, of the United States, and elsewhere in the world. That is the company that they want to keep. And that is the company that in time, they have the capacity to lead. But when you think about it, and you think of the world that, that we are in, this is not a zero-sum game. I always say, can China lead the world of universities? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, can. it absolutely can, but not alone, uh, because its strength depends on its openness to talent from around the world. And this is the point about the U.S. And it's also the same point about the United States. This is not a winner-take-all game. We don't have to win and have them lose. You know, all these people would go on a big riff. It's not true in semiconductors either. But nevertheless, in this realm, you know, we all profit from learning one from another. But at the end of the day, with the Americans in the enviable position that we are today in higher education, what we should mostly worry about is ourselves. You know, I asked this question in the book, why do the good citizens of Alabama, why are they willing to do anything to support Nick Saban and the Crimson Tide, which is a great football team, don't get me wrong, and almost nothing to support the university in which it is located? 
Why is higher education such a political football? Take a look at the University of California system. It had been the greatest system of public higher education in the world. It has now been starved for resources over decades. Uh, it has been effectively privatized. UC Berkeley gets 13% of its income from the state uh, today. And it, the, this system uh, is, you know, California that we know today would not be the California of today without the University of California system. It's been an essential engine of California's economic and technological growth. There's no Silicon Valley. And yet we have all across the country, you have politicians treating higher education as a political football. And, you know, to be sure, there are things that happen in colleges and universities that make them easy laughing stocks or easy, easy targets. Easy targets. Easy targets for politics, but it's a huge mistake. You know, we need. You know, I would wish that Governor DeSantis would invest seriously in the University of Florida rather than worrying about what textbooks are taught in it. I hear you. Well, Dr. Kirby, this has been amazing. So interesting. Everyone's got to go out and read Dr. Kirby's book, Empires of Ideas. I really appreciate you taking the time today, Dr. Kirby. Dan, it's been a great, great pleasure to, to be on it. I really appreciate the great questions. And um you know, we should revisit this since you also care so deeply about this. In a few years' time, let's see where we are. Exactly. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 